0: Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Dark Temple podcast with me, filmmaker Charlie Steeds. In 2019 I flew out to Nashville, Tennessee to shoot a movie of mine that I'd been dreaming of making for a couple of years, but never thought I'd get the chance to make on an indie scale. Death Ranch, my tribute to Grindhouse and exploitation films, was an incredibly fun and somehow easy shoot. But on top of that, I was also finally getting to meet my friend and fellow filmmaker, Aaron Murtis, who I'd been speaking to over the internet and video calls since 2017. Aaron is also a low budget filmmaker. His feature films include Clowntogeist, and yes, you heard that title right. Clowntergeist, Curse of the Nun, American Hunt, The Alpha Test, and Ouija Craft. And like me, he's a guy in his 20s making films as a full-time career, and has found incredible commercial success with some of these movies. Aaron has a very well-informed and down-to-earth insight into the current world of straight-to-DVD movie-making, movies that are often made to order at the request of distributors. And if you're an aspiring filmmaker, director or producer listening to my podcast, this episode is loaded with useful information about the work people like me and Aaron do. Aaron's not a tourist who swings by to make one horror movie with his life savings or with an industry connection that got him the job. He's building a full-time directing, producing career from the ground up, from practically nothing. And I have a huge respect for anyone that can do that. And this is part of the reason me and him had a sort of instant connection and friendship. Making Death Ranch together was a blast. We got on like a burning cross on fire and this was a really fun interview reminding ourselves of the time we had on location. So I hope you listeners enjoy it too.
1: I am the only person I know who makes horror films down here. I do know people that make Christian films, Lifetime films, but I'm kind of the only uh, horror filmmaker. That's why I got to Skype all the way to London when I want to talk to a horror filmmaker.
0: Um, let's start by talking about your first horror feature film. Yes. Um, and I, I really want to know as well. When it came to your first feature film, why did you choose horror in the first place? Like, were you already a fan of horror?
1: Yeah, I was a big fan of horror. So me and horror have a funky relationship at first. So I was terrified of it. I was absolutely terrified of it as a kid. Like, I was a nervous kid. And so they they're, they're, they freaked me out, the idea of a horror movie. And when I was about 12 or 13, I was like, OK, if I'm going to make movies, I should watch all kinds of movies. I should broaden my horizons. Um, and so I watched Psycho. I looked up scary best scary movies of all time, yeah. <laughs> and I saw that Psycho was in black and white. So I thought there's no possible way that it could be scary if it's in mm, black mm. and white. Um, usually that's the case, but that was not the case with Psycho. Psycho was very much very scary. But what surprised me was that I loved the experience of being thrilled and being put on the edge of my seat and... I wanted to emulate that. Like, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to emulate the thrill of a horror movie. So, I started watching more, anything I could get my hands on. I was really young, so it was a lot of the PG 13 stuff, like Cloverfield, 1408, you know, kind of that P- wave of PG 13 horror movies that came out at the time, and then older stuff like Jurassic Park, Jaws, and things like that. So, when I got out of high school, I went to film school for about a semester. And I'd been doing film since I was eight. And I'd been working professionally doing wedding videos and live TV and stuff like that. And then we had uh, broadcast classes in our school. So we did stuff with the, with the news and stuff like that. So by the time I was 18, I had plenty of experience in all kinds of things. I'd been making horror short films all the way through high school. So I, I film school, I'm thinking, man, you know, I don't know how it is over there. But the student debt thing here is just crippling. So it was like $120,000 for film school. So, yeah, (laughs) one semester into film school, I bailed and I was like, okay, I'm going to make a movie. You know, I had seen on these, you know, the straight to DVD market was still booming. It was not booming. It was kind of on its way out, but it was still alive. And so I thought maybe I could make some money there. So I was very much I didn't know that I wanted to do just horror, um, which I guess I still don't. But horror is still my main focus. When it came to making a movie, I thought, okay, I can make a horror movie. I could be passionate about it and excited about it and sell it. It was like the best of all worlds. Mm. And so that was what brought me to my clown movie.
0: How did uh, someone who dropped out of film school go about getting the crew, getting the cast? I mean, where did you do it? How did you get the money?
1: Yeah. So there's a reason it took three years to make that movie. It was because I had no (laughs) idea what I was doing. You know, I had, like I said, I had made plenty of DSLR short films um, like you. I mean, you had made a bunch of short films as well. Yeah, yeah. And that is crucial, you know, because then uh, then you at least know how to make the movie.
0: That's how you learn. Yeah. I mean, for me, with my short films, it felt like I made 20 short films and then the first feature was like a natural progression. It was just yeah. it was the next short film. It just happened to be longer.
1: See, that's how it should be. <laughs> <laughs> And for some reason, I thought it would be wise to make a big jump up to the next level (laughs) like an idiot. So originally when I started working on it, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to raise seven thousand dollars by either doing work here and there, you know, because I had done all kinds of freelance stuff. Um, Or I'll bug everybody that I've ever worked for, or I'll do a Kickstarter, or I'll bug my parents, or whatever. I was just, I was going to get $7,000, and then I was going to make a movie in the exact same way that I made my short films. Mm. And then I get a call from my friend who's in film school in Los Angeles. And he says, hey, you should come out, make your movie in Los Angeles, and then use the gear that we have here at the film school. We could shoot on Alexa. We could shoot on Red." Um, you can work with real actors and all that stuff. Mm. And for some, du- I debated it a lot. I'm thinking, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm gonna drown out there.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Then I
1: thought, well, if you know, another great filmmaker had that opportunity when they were starting out, they would have taken it like an idiot. <laughs> so I went like an idiot. And we spent way too much money, and I got the money by doing exactly what I said. I tried a Kickstarter, it failed. I bugged my parents, I bugged everybody I ever worked for. I ran up two credit cards, um, and I saved up money freelancing. Mm. And we spent like thirty grand over the course of three years. Um, and then after that three years, I was paying off that credit card for another year. Yeah. And then we, when we went out there to Los Angeles, it was it was just a nightmare. I had to fire my ad. We had actors that were just a nightmare. They were divas and giving us issues. There were a lot of good actors. It was just there's more like a couple of specific thorns on our side. And then one of the sets got eaten up in a wildfire. So oh we had God. to cancel the pro- yeah, so we had to <laughs> cancel the production about two thirds of the way through. I came back yeah. home, I edit my footage, realize it's too short, write new scenes, go back out there a year and a half later, shoot the new scenes, shoot the missing old scenes, come back, and then to save time, I was like, no, we're not going to shoot any establishing shots or anything like that. So I came back to Nashville, shot a bunch of establishing shots, shot all that stuff. That was when High Octane called me and was like, hey, we want your movie. We're going to give you cash money for it. I'm like, sweet. And it was actually a pretty good deal. It's harder to get an MG these days. You can still get them, very much so. But for a little movie like mine, you couldn't get an MG like you could back then.
0: And you did a great thing where you had a clown movie... Right at the time on accident, yeah, by accident, (laughs) right at the time where all these different um clown films started coming straight to DVD because of it,
1: yep. Well, and that was what that was why High Octane called, yeah. They were like, Hey, clowns are hot, and we had a we did have a movie with decent production quality. We shot in Los Angeles, we shot in all these cool spots, Mm, we shot on Alexa, so I mean, that did increase the value of the movie significantly.
0: I did the similar thing, but I did it intentionally where my first feature labyrinthia was uh made at the same time mad max was coming out to try and cash in on the mad max stuff um and uh funnily enough same thing high octane who uh well they weren't high octane there they were empress road pictures yeah empress road but it was the same thing they got in touch with me out of the blue uh they're a sales agent and they get in touch with you to pick up your film and then they sell it to distributors Did you have any idea how sales and the film markets and stuff worked? Because I didn't have a clue.
1: No, I had no clue. No clue. And so that way, when they renamed it Clowntergeist, and they gave me this crazy poster that did not have my clown on it, (laughs) and all this stuff, I'm thinking, man, oh man, that... uh that sucks doesn't it (laughs) and then all of a sudden we became a mockery we're in the hollywood reporter entertainment weekly we got a lot of good press because of our stupid ass title yeah Um, yeah. and so they were right (laughs) and that was what killed me i'm like okay they were they were right um and i actually that was how i met you is you did my clowner guys trailer yeah and so when i started doing trailers i did the trailer for house of violent desire Mm. and i thought Oh my gosh! This this is a cool movie. This guy seems cool. He did my Clowner Guy's trailer, so he already knows I exist. I'll just call him up and and uh, you know just say hi.
0: Well, you jumped to part of the story there because I edited your Clowner Guy's trailer, and then you stole my trailer editing job. Yes, I did. And then you edited my House of Violent Desire trailer.
1: I did. You were off doing Winter Skin. Um, That's right. And the Barge People back yeah. to back. <laughs> and so you couldn't keep up with the demand because High Octane was really growing as a distribution company and a sales agency. Mm, mm. And so they had a bajillion trailers and then they would drop them on you right before the market is what they would do. They'd be like, AFM is in two weeks. Here's eight trailers, which no sane person could even keep up with.
0: With Clountergeist did you get either worried or disheartened at all by the fact that it it was making you look like a rip-off filmmaker and then with your next film, Curse of the Nun, again, it was like another rip-off type movie or a mockbuster.
1: Did did that, like,
0: dishearten you at first?
1: It still disheartens me. (laughs) (laughs) It disheartens me all the time, especially because Curse of the Nun at its core, I think, is a cool movie. I was definitely learning and finding my footing, but I'm like, man, there's a cool movie here. And if there wasn't a mockbuster at the center of it, I think people could appreciate that. Um, Mm. There are obviously some major, major issues in it that I just, you know, that are my own fault. But nobody can see past the fact that it is a ripoff movie. And I don't blame them. I mean, who like who watches ripoff movies? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's the reason that I'm kind of you know before this phone call we were talking about that I'm kind of shifting directions a little bit because it's like if when you make a ripoff movie, it could be a brilliant movie, you know, but it it doesn't matter.
0: And it's not it's not the filmmaker's fault necessarily. Like in the case of Clown to Guys, like you said, this was three years before.
1: Yeah. It that was, was a total accident yeah I had made it because I wanted to see a good clown horror movie because there weren't any
0: well yeah and then these sales agents are the people who twist your idea into then becoming a rip off I mean my movie was called Werewolves my werewolf movie and they've renamed it A Werewolf in England you know as a rip off of American Werewolf in London at least that's a rip off of a movie that's like a classic from almost 40 years ago and it's not like yeah. you know something that's just coming out now but it i mean my idea my own idea and i guess ego perception of myself as a filmmaker when i first made my first feature um was that you know this is these these are my movies this is my first feature these are these are sacred things this is your first outing into filmmaking and you can only have your first one once and you know you leave a trail of everything that you've made so for it to become sort of mocked across the internet mocked through the marketing Mm -hmm. it it may well make you money but it is something kind of difficult as a filmmaker to sort of grapple with if you if if the world is mocking you right out of the gate That's like yet another hurdle that
1: you have to overcome. Well, and sometimes, I mean, it's, 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 it's bad. I mean, there's like, (laughs) like I said, there's a reason I'm thinking about just, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about changing my name to, you know, start over again and have that first again.
0: Because you've had some crazy people coming after you for your movies, haven't you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really, it's really hard. It really sucks because the thing is, I don't blame the sales agents for doing what they're doing at all not one bit because they need to make their money and who they need to make their money back on who the movie.
0: hell wants to see your little low budget movies anyway bingo this is the hard pill to swallow but it's an important lesson that nobody wants to see your shitty little horror movie no matter how much you like horror movies and no matter how much you think you're gonna be a good filmmaker one day uh, mm-hmm. nobody wants to see your shit but they do wanna buy clowns even if it's by accident because they think they're buying it you know or they yeah. just want more of it um and werewolves and whatever and that's just sort of that's how it is like that's the harsh reality of it there
1: needs to be something that sells the movie no matter what it is there needs to be something that sells it whether you yourself become a brand or you work with an actor who is a brand or you have a werewolf or a clown at the center of it Mm. that is essentially has a following and it's essentially a character Mm. you know you have to have something that is going to sell your movie and make its money back because nobody wants to watch your shitty little horror movie.
0: <laughs> we are just two kids that wanted to make movies. We had nothing. Yeah. We, we don't even have rich families willing to cough up, you know, 100,000 for us to make our movies and, yeah. you know, get us connected with all the people in showbiz. We are literally just two kids on our own. Uh, going out there and there's not that many of us around really
1: there isn't and like i said that's why it takes you know calling somebody from a different country it's like Mm -hmm. there really aren't many of us
0: so we were talking about uh films needing to have uh, a specific selling point and a monster and all that sort of stuff well one film of mine that doesn't have any of that is the house of violent desire so you ended (laughs) up you ended up doing a trailer for it and uh watched it uh do you always get in touch with filmmakers who you edit the trailers for? Or was there never, something? Never, that... never.
1: The only reason I got a hold of you was because I knew... Well, first of all, it was different than any of the movies I had seen, right? Because I yeah. was doing trailers for these things that were marketable for an obvious reason, mm, right? Mm. They were rip-off movies. They were this, that, the other. They, you know, found filmmakers like me who made a movie. They took it, twisted it to the marketplace and then dumped it out.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I, again, I do not blame them because these are bad movies. Like... Mm, mm. You know, it, you might think your movie is brilliant, but it's probably not. And my I am no exception. My movies are not brilliant, especially, you know, the further back you go, the less brilliant they are. But I watched The House of Violent Desire and I thought, this is a guy with a voice. Mm. This is a guy who meant to do this. And I recognized that you did Cannibal Farm for High Octane. Mm-hmm. And I figured I should just call this guy up, you know, and. Mm. Um, and we just hit it off right away because we were doing the same. Th- we were doing the same thing, both working making for the movies, same company, working for the same company, even, you know, making movies, editing trailers, getting funding, you know, and mm. just trying to figure out. And I think when we met, you were working on Barge People and Winterskin yeah. and I was starting American Hunt.
0: You'd thrown out the offer to me. Oh, you should you should come out to Tennessee and film yeah. and i have locations and it, you know it'd be great to just like hang out and make movies together and yeah. it was inevitable that we would do it at one point um, and then when i saw your film american hunt you saw hunt. hunt yeah when i saw american hunt i saw the barn which is mm-hmm. where we also then filmed death ranch later on and it reminded me straight away of this old script that had that had been sitting around for a y- couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Death Ranch, which was... It was meant to be set in that sort of, like, you know, this part of America and in the sort of uh, the barn. Um, yeah. And I thought that could work for for that movie. And it was a movie that I thought there's I'd never be able to make it on a sort of indie budget because I'd have to go all out to America. I'd have to find all the locations. Like, this is one this is an idea that was on the back burner for way in the future. Like I have, Mm -hmm. uh, you probably have the same, like a little list of ideas. It's like, this is a great idea, but I'm not going to be able to make it. Yeah, it's impossible. So suddenly one of my impossible ideas seemed possible. And it just became kind of like, well, mainly down to you. It just became kind of like the easiest thing. You know, you sent me all the uh, videos of. uh, Yeah the set and the the sort of walk-in tour of what we had access to. And you drew me maps uh, and just all the instructions of how to, how to get online and do the castings out there. Um, Yeah. And just through just a online chat, you know, we ended up planning out this whole movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I came out to Tennessee for a month. We'd never met. Yeah. We'd never met in person. I was coming to, I I was coming to stay with you for a month. Um, were, were you what was your feelings on it? I mean it, it was like incredibly generous for you to offer all of that to this random filmmaker from England. Yeah
1: I mean I just like I said right away I identified that we were so similar and you know I'm always really big on helping other filmmakers. Same um, yeah. We got to stick together it's such a tough gig mm. and everybody's going through a different story and everybody's going through a different arc and try to find their way. And anything I can do to help, I like to help. And on top of that, making movies takes a long time. Mm. It really does. And you learn that, you know, making a good movie takes a long time. And so getting to help somebody on theirs is a Mm. way to continue to sharpen your craft, have fun, hang out, be on set without actually having to make a movie yourself. You know, Um, because... I can't be on set as much as I want to be on set. I'd love to be, you know, and it's, it's just, it's fun. I like producing every now and again. It's nothing I would ever shift to full time, but, um, it's something I want to continue doing. And so I'm like, okay, well, this guy, we're, we're, we're really similar. And, you know, I don't know. I guess I just figured, <laughs> fuck it. Why not? What do I have to lose? It sounds like fun. And so <laughs> I just did it, you know,
0: just. It was such a blast and such a memorable shoot It and was such a smooth, An easy shoot, for me at least.
1: Well, it was just physically exhausting. Nothing went wrong. It was, yeah, it
0: was definitely physically exhausting because it was hot, and we had to. We only had fifteen days to shoot the whole movie. Yeah, which for me is really
1: fast. It's funny because that's the longest shoot I've ever had. Is fifteen days. (laughs) I (laughs) Death Ranch and the Alpha Test are both fifteen days. Mm -hmm. Every day we were shooting some. Explosive scene, (laughs) (laughs) and my poor (laughs) (laughs) neighbors—they had to witness all this KKK gore and the burning cross and all that stuff. I mean, it's—it's funny. It's like, where do you even begin when you talk about making Death Ranch? Because there were so many things that were just (laughs) crazy. It just—the whole thing was crazy, is what it was. You tell them if they come in here, I'll blow their motherfucking heads off. You might want to keep your distance. How many of them? Two! And they got guns! Shut the fuck up! Uh, Everything's going to be okay, Gator. All i got to do is talk to these uh, miscreants. See if we can get you out of there alive.
0: I thought you looked after your neighbours quite well, though, because you went and dropped around little notes and then little gift cards and... I did. We never got disturbed. No, we didn't. There were 15 days for me to just sort of hang out and prep. And then there were 15 days to actually shoot the movie. And then there was like one or two days at the end. Because I was yeah. there for the whole month of, I think, April. May. I mean, I'd never been to Tennessee before. So it was nice yeah. for you to
1: show me all of the sights. I know. That was fun. You know what's funny? I, here's a funny memory I have. So there's this... It's like a... So it sounds like you guys don't really have a lot of this in the UK. Mm. We have a lot of these like high end fast food chains. Mm, So there's still fast food, but it's better than McDonald's, but worse than like a sit down restaurant. (laughs) And Dylan and I had one that we really liked called Culver's. And so I'm like, there's this hamburger restaurant. You got to try it. It's so good. And I took you to it and it was a crowded day. And since everything's made by hand, on a crowded day, they'll fuck up your hamburger. <laughs> and they fucked up our hamburgers. And you're sitting there like, this is a hamburger restaurant? This is no better than fast food. What the hell is this? <laughs> Do you remember that? It Every was... time I go there for some reason, I think about, what kind of
0: hamburger restaurant is this? <laughs> <laughs> this that hamburger was disgusting.
1: It was um, disgusting. I, I they fucked even, it up pretty bad. I don't
0: bad. even know if I ate the thing. But all it was... You was, did. All oh. it was was a burger in a bun... There was, n- there was nothing else in there. There was nothing to, like, help it go down. No salt.
1: I, I know. <laughs> they, they fucked it up because it's still delicious, and I'm probably going to get it. Before the shoot, we ate out at a restaurant. Every night.
0: And, and lunch. Lunch and dinner. Every yeah. single day. Well,
1: I wanted, I wanted you to really get a sense of America. Uh, we'd go to Nashville and we'd look around. And... Well,
0: there was the one day where we got to drive down to Chattanooga.
1: Yeah, I forgot about that. That's right. We went down to shoot uh, God Country, which is a movie that our friend Luke was working on.
0: Yeah, because we were extras, weren't we, in the film?
1: We were. And <laughs> we're in there for about a second. Um, if that... I don't think I'm in it. I think you are.
0: What was that weird deli that we went to? Colt <laughs> yeah.
1: Diner, the yellow <laughs> deli. That we was... got lunch there after the shoot. And it was run by a
0: cult. But it was amazing on the inside,
1: wasn't it? It was so good. It was like a treehouse. It was three or four. Mm. It was so like they took a two-story building mm. and then divided each story in half. So it's four tiny stories, and it was like a treehouse where you'd go up through it. Everything was hand carved. There are tables on each like level, and we sat out on the on the deck. And everybody was wearing the same thing and they were all like (laughs) wide-eyed. They're like, how can I help you?
0: Yeah, it was that creepy cult, wasn't
1: it? (laughs) They were more like, they were like between a cult and a commune, you know? Well, aside from
0: the food, I mean, my favorite favorite days and experiences shooting Death Ranch, I loved the day when uh, the Cadillac showed up. The guy, the owners of the, basically on the morning I woke up, I thought this day where we need to drive around in a Cadillac, which always makes me nervous having to, Go out into the open to to yeah. mo- make your movie because anything could happen. You could get stopped or whatever. You just don't know. Um, but on the day I woke up, when the Cadillac was coming, they were, it was meant to be here like ten. I woke up at like eight. Oh yeah. Eight, I remember this. And the Cadillac. Um, they'd emailed me saying they they can't bring the Cadillac until I've got insurance. Like they wanted. They suddenly sprang upon me that they wanted a certain type of insurance that I had to yeah. pay for. So I had to like quickly get the insurance and then finally it showed up. Um, and then we had the best shoot day with the Cadillac. Yeah. And that's part of what I loved about shooting in Tennessee is like we, we just went out in the Cadillac and drove around and got all yeah. these stunning shots. In, in England, I don't think you could do that. I think, I, think you, I mean, if you were in really rural England, you could get away with it, but you just get stopped. Like, you just get stopped almost immediately uh, and pulled over and told that you're not allowed to do it. Um, Yeah. And also the scenery, well, this is from my opinion, but the scenery wouldn't be anywhere near as pretty.
1: But No, it's beautiful out here. I mean, the the American South is a funny thing because it's largely untouched. Mm. You know, as you saw on our drive to Chattanooga, Mm -mm. um, it's like you've got a city here, You know, you've got Nashville and then outside of Nashville, it's a bunch of smaller suburban towns. Um, And then outside of those are like little more and just gets more and more rural. And then you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, Yeah. yeah. And we were like right on the edge of um, a smaller town. But yeah, we did. We literally we took the Cadillac. We we took my car, popped the no, we took Ashley's car, popped the trunk. You were on one camera. I was on one camera. Travis drove the Cadillac behind us and we just (laughs) drove down those back roads and and got a bunch of shots and it was a lot of fun
0: yeah and the other memory that i uh the other day i really enjoyed was we really needed to uh use a, an old pay phone like a phone booth.
1: oh that I, it's one of my favorite memories oh. too
0: i just it's one of my favorite it was one of my favorite little moments of filming just because it came together so easy it was so easy it had been a, it had been a stress from day one like because obviously before I came out there, I had to run by you some specific things that I was going to need one of them yeah. was the Cadillac, so mm-hmm. I knew that this film had to have this Cadillac in it, and you know i think I think it was you guys who, who must have got me in touch with the, the, the yeah. Cadillac guy, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that I could find it. But another one that I really needed was I needed the phone booth, the payphone. Yeah, payphone. Um, and we couldn't, you know, you, you, you'd sourced a few, but they were like miles away. And Yeah, payphones
1: was, are all but gone. I, I, mean... was,
0: I was scouring um, eBay thinking of actually buying a full-blown mm-hmm. Payphone to get delivered. It was going to be like three hundred dollars, yeah. and it would have been delivered, and we would have just stuck it in the ground. And then, yeah. lo and behold, the place where we were driving back and like driving past every single day—yeah,
1: the little I, rural gas station that's been there for over 100 years, which you know, like they had a hundred years—which was like two minutes
0: down the street. And yeah, like who, literally two minutes from the house. And I it was—who who was it? Who who turned around and said, "Hang on, I a did." Minute.
1: I was like, "There's a payphone right there." And it, it didn't work, but it didn't have to work. And that was why it didn't show up on any maps right, or anything, right. was because it was an out of commission payphone. Um, so we just set out one day, didn't we? We just well, we just pulled up and I said, you know, there are a bunch of people inside. I bet you if you just went and asked, Can we shoot a video of this payphone for something we're working on, she'd say yes. Yeah. And so you you went in there and what I remember what she said. Do you
0: remember what she said? Um, uh, Yeah, I probably can remember because I went in and I just thought, I need to use my British charm. So I just said, like, I'm I'm over from London and I want to, you know, just take a short video of your payphone. What did she say?
1: She said, I don't see why not. (laughs) And then we just went out there. And we just went out there and shot the payphone. And just shot
0: the scene of DeAndre in prison overalls, topless and sweaty, running out of the bushes, making a phone call. Yeah. Which was, for me, was like just a really important image to start the film off with. So I really wanted it. Yeah,
1: it it is. I mean, it sets everything up really well. It was perfect, too, because that payphone, the woods, there were woods right behind that gas station. So he could just come out of those woods to the payphone. Yeah, it it, it was just perfect. It was perfect.
0: The whole shoot was a shoot where perfect things just happened. You know, like some films, you know this probably, some films, they just don't want to be made. And they're a total bitch. And every little thing that should just yeah. be easy is so difficult. Ends yeah. up being a nightmare. But this was a film where, like magic, it just, it wanted to happen. And it just, it made itself. Yeah. There, was, there was no effort required in, a, in some
1: sort of a way. Yeah. Well, all the actors were really on board, you know. I think that was a big thing. I, the yeah. I, sure.
0: I was definitely lucky because I had such an amazing team of people you know i've never made a film that wasn't just it all just fell on my head you know like it's all on my back to pull it all off but uh you you guys were helping me and uh and the actors were amazing and very professional and all knew exactly what they were doing um and also i have to say like and and maybe you maybe you feel the same like i'd never made a film with another filmmaker, like I'd never collaborated. Yeah, I had neither. And, and sort of let go of so much stuff and just trusted you because, you know, you shot on your camera. I shot on my camera. The film is 50, yeah, 50. Yeah, it really is.
1: I, c- I can't tell what's yours and what's mine, you know? Yeah. It's,
0: it's, it's 50, 50, just the two of us going at it. Um, and just, you know, making the movie together as a collaboration.
1: Um, so I learned a lot from... I learned a lot from you. I mean, we we both, I think, picked up a lot because we're, we're, we're different in a lot of ways in how we make our movies yeah. and how we approach things as any two filmmakers are. Yeah. Um, and so I think we both learned just a lot. It was just really an educational experience. We had a lot of fun and we worked well together, which was great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, it's crazy when I watch that movie. I I cannot tell what's yours and what's mine, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, when I came back, I definitely wrote down a few things that I'd learned from you, like from watching you doing stuff as well. But it would be great to have them, but I can't even remember what these things were. But they're, the they're biggest weren't.
1: thing I learned from you really was to the the importance. First of all, the importance of, I guess, building things and just like making things real, the importance of making things real on camera, not cheating something. If you need to hang a clans member, the best thing you can do is hang a clans member. Don't cheat it. Don't, you know, get a mannequin, dress it up, hang it from the barn. And I would always try and cheat around the more difficult things. Um, But it's like, no, like, just, just do it. And you're so you know, my opinion on practical effects changed completely. Like I was Mm -hmm. always pro practical effects and I I thought they were the way to go, but I would use a lot of CGI and, Mm. um, and then I was after death ranch, I was like, okay, you can do so much more in camera than I ever thought you could. And then I did Mm -hmm. Ouija craft that September Mm. where it was a lot of witch effects, a lot of CGI. And I was thinking, and I did that. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. from here on out, it's like minimal CGI. Because just between I did Uh Death Ranch, which was all practical. And then I did Ouija Craft, which was heavy amounts of CGI, Mm -hmm, at least for mm -hmm. an independent movie, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like, okay, you know, you like we did on Death Ranch, you can pull it off in camera. You just have to do the work. You have to build it. You know, if it's a trap Mm -hmm. door, for example, we built that trap door, stuck it in the ground. You know, you can cheat certain things. But I don't know. I was just amazed at how (laughs) we didn't cheat anything. We did everything in camera. Yeah, I, in everything. Fact, I, I
0: remember, I remember a lot of instances where I would be like, you know, I would be wandering off through the woods full of, you know, bugs and spiders and webs and all sorts of nastiness finding my little spot where I wanted to film. And you'd be like, you can't, you can't go there. Yeah. You can't get down in that horrible ditch. Yeah. And I'm like, i can aaron and i'm getting down there with my camera i know so y- you would have you would have naturally picked somewhere not so messy
1: yeah uh, easy it's because i'm always babying the actors you know i'm always babying the actors <laughs> and myself yeah and that's what i think i realized as i was babying myself more than i wanted to admit <laughs> but the big thing is my my main and only consideration ever is story and the actors and so i just figured Shoot it wherever, cheat it like it's fine as long as the story and the acting comes across. But mm. on Death Ranch, I learned you know, there's a really important element that I was missing, and that was actually doing everything on camera mm. so people mm. can see what's happening. That goes mm. a long way. So it, mm. you know, it was like your actors are going to be fine, you know, just warn them this is going to be tough. And then mm. just do it, you know. As long as they're safe, it's fine, you know. And I think that was the big piece that was missing for me, like, which I mean, is my strength. The performances in my movies are usually one of the stronger aspects, and same with the the, mm. the story. Mm-hmm. But I just, I was just like I said, amazed at the the extent of what you got on camera. Another good example was the cross. I'm thinking, y- yeah, you know, you can't burn a 30 foot cross, <laughs> uh, but we did.
0: <laughs> well, just about we had we just had about difficulty. we had a lot
1: of issues uh, that was the day I got like really heat sick I had to like well yeah
0: you you were up on the ladder spraying out of a pressure diesel, pump. yeah, diesel. Oh my gosh um was, i mean i've got some The fire and in the somewhere. diesel
1: made me so sick i had to go up and take a shower and like i was gonna puke i didn't though and i i just yeah. cleaned up and i was like <laughs> i need air i feel like
0: shit well i've got some amazing behind the scenes shots of you like spraying a, the burning cross with the hose like you you look yourself like you're about
1: to get set on fire <laughs> oh i know i was so pissed with that thing i was right in there well because i had spent we had spent because you had told my dad who was helping us with it you were like I want the biggest cross that you can muster and I'm like <laughs> yeah. you're talking to the king of of you know, <laughs> big builds my dad loves the bigger the better so he gives us this like, t- 30 foot tall log these two <laughs> logs and he puts bolts in there and he's like all you gotta do is tighten these things so we <laughs> are out there in the heat pulling this wrench as hard as we can we could barely get this thing tightened oh and
0: it was so hot as well
1: Oh, I it know. Like well, and you know, the irony, the, the funny thing is it was like the opposite of the situation before where it was like you were just saying you would go out in the bug in the heat and be like, let's shoot here. I'd be like, you can't shoot here. Meanwhile, I'm putting this cross together and you're just kind of watching me and you're like, well, that doesn't look much fun. I'm like, <laughs> help me with this cross. And you're like, no, I think I'll just go take care of this, that or the other. So you're going taking take care of the actors. I'm trying to get this cross together. <laughs> and I finally managed to get the two pieces of the cross together. My dad had cut yeah, yeah. you know, a curve in one of them, in both of them, so that way they'd fit together. What I didn't think about was getting it into the ground. You know. Neither did I. Yeah, we had dug a hole that was deep enough. <laughs> I just figured, yeah, we'll just tip it into the hole. Uh, my dad thought, oh, you'll probably need to hook it up to a, a cable and then take the tractor and pull it into the hole. When well, we get all the actors there... And you were off doing something else. Like, I just told you, yeah, we're going to get the cross on the ground. Don't worry about it. And um, it was the heaviest thing I've ever felt in my life. (laughs) The thing had to be 1,500 pounds. No, more like 1,000 pounds. But it was at least 1,000 pounds. But there was like, (laughs) it was like that image in World War II of everybody with the flag. Like, there's like six of us pushing one side and a bunch (laughs) of people with a rope pulling the other. And we got it in there. It took us a minute and we probably shouldn't have done it,
0: but <laughs> we
1: got it in there. And then it had been soaking in diesel all day, but apparently that wasn't enough because it had, the wood was still wet from the rain.
0: The bloody thing
1: didn't light. Oh my gosh. The, it didn't. It didn't light. But, and then the cross started to burn and the, the, you know, arm part of the cross started <laughs> yeah. tilting. Started to go so wonky. now we have this <laughs> wonky cross. <laughs> but so then we just put a bunch of brush at the bottom and started a fire for the light. Yeah. And yeah. I mean it looks insidious and scary and it worked. It, that was really the only major thing that didn't it, come yeah, out like the yeah, you thought.
0: Yeah, you're right cuz it worked but it wasn't the amazing burning cross we were quite anticipating. But yeah. it did work. But yeah. It, it did work. It, when we um when when I realized how the hell are we going to get this cross in the ground? I remember just thinking to myself, I have no idea how this cross is going to stand up. And I remember just saying, Aaron, you get the cross in the ground. I'll go and shoot this scene. And I just left and I thought, just please, by the time I come back, let's just pray that I come back and the cross is in the bloody ground. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't care how they're going to do it and then when i came back it was it was standing upright i was amazed but yeah uh, in terms of like i'm thinking what i learned from you um on the shoot but um it, it's kind of exactly what you just said you were saying that you care so much about the actors that yeah. you wouldn't want to shove them in the dirt whereas i'm the opposite I'll, I'll i'm like let's do it let's get them in the dirt let's make them dirty let's not cheat it let's do it for real yeah. um But that is, but funnily enough, that's kind of something you learned from me. But it's also something I learned from you because I think everything was a little bit more sort of the way you do things out there. It was more relaxed. It was more, you're taking care of yourself as well. You know, we're going out, we're finishing filming and going out and having dinner at a restaurant. Like something, when I go away for like a 22 day shoot, when it gets to the end, I'm so desperate just for even a McDonald's. I just want to yeah. see food that exists that wasn't made in my kitchen in five minutes. You know, yeah. like, so the fact that I could shoot, you know, shoot the fuck pit in the day and be yeah. out dining in a, you know, sports bar or whatever in the evening with the cast, yeah. that was, that was something that, um, it was like learning to look after yourself and treat yourself. Yeah. And that's kind of
1: what I think I arrived at is that the answer was somewhere in the middle of what you were doing and what I was doing. (laughs) Because you need to get it on camera. You can't baby everybody, but you need to take care of them. And you you always talk about how smooth it went. And I think like it only went so smooth because I was constantly checking up on those actors and making sure they were okay. And I took them out to dinner on my own dime several times. And it was like, (laughs) that was why there was no mutiny. (laughs) You know, <laughs> yeah. there were several people that were like pissed off they're like we're getting this sandwich for lunch and i'm like yeah but <laughs> afterward we're getting chick-fil-a i guess and they're like oh okay, <laughs> you know um our, dylan and i still joke about death ranch sandwiches which are <laughs> a lot of bread one piece of meat one piece of cheese death ranch sandwich. That, that's or, not just, No, there was like lettuce and mayonnaise, I think.
0: That's not just a death ranch sandwich. That's all Dark Temple Productions
1: Ugh. have this same sandwich. See, it's funny cuz that's that's so, that's still where we're different is cuz I'll <laughs> I'll spend like oh gosh. I mean, for a 20 for a 15 day shoot, I would spend $1500 on food. Right? Mm. And you're like $1500, more like $150. I'm like, "What?" But I (laughs) I get like I either get catering, get home cooking from my mom or get Mm. uh, restaurant food or I take everybody out. Like I'm so anal about Mm. I think it's just because I had so many on Klannergeist in L.A. So this is in in California. Everyone is very entitled. It's not a stereotype. Mm. Everyone feels Mm -hmm. like they're owed something. And because Mm -hmm. it's such a. Without getting too into it, it's such a liberal state. And the taxes are so high and the mm-hmm. government handouts are really high, which means everybody feels entitled to your money, which means the production mm-hmm. needs to cover everything. So like mm-hmm. in Death Ranch, how everyone just drove to work in the in the morning, you couldn't do that yeah. in California. You would need to pay them for yeah. gas. You would need to pay them mm-hmm. for car maintenance. No one would do you any favors. It's like, well, if you, like yeah. we had people trying to charge us when they use their own clothes. They're like, well, I'm wearing my own clothes for the movie, so I'm going to charge you. You know? And so I think after that, I was like, oh, my God, these people, these actors are like made of glass. You know, we need to take care of them. And then I came back to Tennessee and saw that wasn't the case. And so I thought, yeah, these actors in in Tennessee, as you saw, they're so not demanding. Everybody was so laid back and so Mm, mm. not demanding, especially our cast in Death Ranch. I mean, you could have shoved them into the dirt and not taken care of them. And it would have been fine because they were dedicated you know. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they were. But I think just I was so scarred from Klangergeist. That's why I am the way I am <laughs> with that stuff.
0: Well, the the whole of Death Ranch was a film with a small budget and really depended massively on favors. Yeah. Not only from you and your parents and the crew and the cast. It was it was that type of a movie, but it was so nice that just everything was organized mainly by yeah. you in a way where people came along and they had respect for the project and, and we were all on the same page and
1: willing to, I think that was both of us. I think that was, I think that was you and I together because you brought mm, the, mm. you know, cause really my, my, we collaborated on the shoot and we collaborated as to, as any producer would on how to get your vision on screen, you know? So it's your, it was yeah. your script and your vision and people mm. really respected that. And I was there to make mm. sure that that happened and that came mm-hmm. together, and so that was where you and me worked together so well. is our strengths mm. complemented each other, you know yeah, and in the end, did, I think that's why it came out to be such a smooth production and such a good movie at the same time, because I've had smooth productions that didn't turn out to be good movies, and vice versa, <laughs> you know yeah, the smoothness of the production usually doesn't have any bearing on the quality of the movie. and so to get both was really yeah. exciting.
0: A question I have for you about what has a bearing on on the quality and smoothness of a movie is budget because mm-hmm. Death Ranch was a low budget movie. Mm-hmm. You've made well we've both made stuff on really low budget. Really budgets. low. Yeah. And but we also you before me because uh you had Clowntergeist, but uh which is a hell of a lot more expensive than my first feature. Yeah. Um mm. my question is like, do you, do, you think, do you think there is a benefit to throwing big money at stuff? Um, you know, spending tens of thousands on things. Does that make the film better and smoother? Or have you learned over time that that doesn't matter so much? It doesn't matter. Is...
1: I've learned that it doesn't matter. So Guillermo del Toro said something. The director's mm-hmm. job is to make your budget invisible and work with what you have. Mm-hmm. So if you mm-hmm. have $10,000 and nothing to work with. Your job is to Mm. make it look like you had everything in the world that you needed. Um, Another quote I think about is actually Seth Rogen. He said, budget is a creative decision and it is. Yeah. yeah. So when Mm -hmm. you have, and that is another issue I take with these, you know, studios is they give you 10 grand and they're like, I want to kill a robot movie. I'm like, mm. you, you're you not going to get a killer robot movie for $10,000. They're like, sure, I will. <laughs> Just buy some mask and throw somebody in it and then boom. And it's like, okay, well, technically you have a killer robot movie, but it's not like very good. And, and that is where there's a big disconnect, I think, between a lot of filmmakers and a lot of studios is they want more than what they're willing to pay for, which is another mm. reason why I'm looking to shift to self-funded and fully independent is because... You can make a movie for whatever, and I learned that particularly on American Hunt. We had four thousand dollars to make that movie, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which would be like two to three thousand pounds. And we everyone was working for free, we shot it in nine days. Um, but Mm -hmm. we were all focused, we were it was like Death Ranch where we were all focused, all there, all ready to go. We had major production issues, just it was one of those things where everything kept going wrong, you know, just coincidences. Um, but I learned on that movie because it came out really really well you know for the most part and it was because we had everything we needed it's a really simple movie and it got the best reviews that I had gotten because we had what we needed it was a $4,000 movie but it's literally people in the woods with fake guns shooting at each other and the whole movie is built around that and it's built around the characters and the story which is always free Um, and so it's like okay now we still overreached a couple of times but In the future, I'm like, okay. And we've both learned this the hard way. Only write what you know you can pull off. I mean, go ahead and write whatever you (laughs) want. But when it comes to like getting it in pre-production, it's like, okay, ask yourself, what can I actually pull off? Which is also something I learned on Death Ranch. I learned truly what pulling it off means. Not faking it, not cheating it. It's like, there is a movie that you can pull off beautifully. I think about like Shane Carruth's movie, Primer and Upstream Color. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He made those movies. I mean, Primer was seven thousand dollars, but yeah. everything in the script—it's like, yeah, well, you only need about seven thousand dollars to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, budget is a creative decision. The more money you have, the more explosive and cool stuff you can do. The bigger, the better. And there is a limit to what you can do on a small budget. But it's it a big budget doesn't mean a better movie it just gives you more tools to make a better movie and it, and the smaller budget you have the more experience that it takes and the more mastery that it takes to make a good movie
0: does that make sense yeah yeah and i think that certain films require certain budgets they do like def ranch is a film that only rec- it, 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 there's nothing more i would have wanted to put in it really it is a low budget film yeah. and it has everything it needs and it's the same you're saying about uh, your film american hunt I agree that f- in in your films that was the, that was probably the first one where I think every everything you needed appeared to be there. Yeah. Uh and even though the budget of Clowntergeist was so much higher yeah s- somehow I think this is an important lesson for some low budget filmmakers to learn anyone out there trying to do it indie yeah uh is that you know people obsess over budget reviewers obsess over budget oh, I the know. filmmakers obsess over budget it's irrelevant it's yeah. it's do cuz death ranch was a film that is way lower budget than the films that I was making just before and the films that I'm making after and now yet is possibly my favorite
1: of my movies it's definitely the smoothest shoot and another funny thing about death ranch too that people obsess over not on death ranch but in general is cameras people obsess over what camera did you use and this that the other yeah, we yeah. used mm-hmm. two old black magic cinema cameras both were like mm. five years old mm-hmm. and we just kind of went for it like it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what you're shooting on it's how you're shooting it
0: Exactly and my camera I bought it off eBay
1: same it was like 600 700 uh, pounds mm-hmm. same with mine mine was also used so ours were both used old bargain cameras that we had had for many years
0: second hand black magic cameras yeah i mean i wouldn't have i would not have dared to shoot on a black magic camera something like an english haunting you know i was i was kind of stuck standing by the Red Dragon, or whatever we were filming mm-hmm. with, shooting in 6K or whatever. But for Death Ranch, it was it was kind of freeing to be able to. I wanted it to look rough and grainy and dirty and gritty yeah. and handheld. So it was like, let's get two little Black Magics and we'll just go out and do this. Yeah. um And so that was sort of like just experiment. You know. Yeah. I know you're 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 as a filmmaker, you're a fan of. Uh, just going out there and experimenting and
1: stuff. Yeah, like, who, I am.
0: Who, who are some of your influences in terms of like d- uh, directors, films that you know? Inspire yeah. You?
1: So in terms of direct, it's funny. In terms of directors and in terms of creativity, I have like two mm-hmm. different sets of influences so what I mean by that is for example I am obsessed with Steven Soderbergh his movies are good but I could really I could take or leave a lot of them I'm not into spy movies or some of the political dramas he does you know I like a lot of his movies I love a few of them Um, but I'm really interested in how he directs how he makes movies I'm interested in how minimal it is I'm interested in how you know kind of Sparse it is, and how prolific he is, and 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 mm. I just I look to him for a lot of guidance. Same with people like Robert Rodriguez, you know. Yeah, I yeah. like Robert Rodriguez's movies, but it's like creatively, I'm on a different wavelength. But I love how he does it all himself. I love how mm. you know he's constantly thinking, how can I keep this independent? Um, mm. So directors like that, I just obsess over. I'm really interested in people who take things into their own hands and make good work. Because I think that's Mm. the future. You know, the market is becoming flooded. Budgets are getting harder to get. And it's like I think Mm. the future of of filmmaking and of independent filmmaking is the filmmaker who knows how to do it all themselves because these days you can, you know. And it takes a lot of practice and it takes multiple movies. But then you end up in a scenario where you control your vision from top to bottom and the Mm. movie that you want actually comes out and there's not some studio shitting all over your work or marketing it funky or whatever Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm really interested in directors like Robert Rodriguez and Steven Soderbergh who kind of take control of those things Um, more recently Mm -hmm. too the Safdie brothers have shown up on the scene making good time Uh and uncut gems really interested in what they are doing they shoot a lot on Mm -hmm. the street they shoot a lot without permits Um, they just kind of run and gun a lot of things I'm really interested in kind of capturing raw stuff You know, Mm. like really focusing on the story and actors and focusing on getting that. Though now, you know, it's funny, is ever since Death Ranch, I've been obsessed with getting it all in camera and getting it all (laughs) there because I saw that we could do it. And I'm like, okay. So now it's like imagine you have some crazy story and you actually pull it all off and then you actually get Mm -hmm. it all on camera and you don't cheat anything, you know? I I re-watched recently Magic Mike. Ooh, Um, Magic Mike. Soderbergh.
0: When I first watched it, I watched it when it first came out and I didn't think much of it. I thought it was kind of shoddy, actually. Yeah. Like the way it was made. I thought it was a bit crap. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get it, basically. But this time I watched it. It was earlier this year. I fully, fully got it and I loved it um yeah it's and, really different um, I
1: think a lot of people expected something really different because of the market
0: yeah it was it was it was it was an expectation thing you're right but the style you're talking about this like really stripped down bare bones shooting style where it really just focuses on the characters and the story I think Magic Mike is actually a really amazing example of that because I think the shots if those shots were in a movie by you or me People on the internet would, you know, they would, they would come for us. Yeah, they would. The the, the cinematography is so shit, you know, they would, they would properly come for us and say that we were amateur. Yeah.
1: Um, You know what I've learned is that people know nothing about cinematography because I'll see movies that look like shit and people are like, it's beautiful. And then I'll turn around (laughs) on my own movies and then there will people be like, look, the camera and sound were fine, but the story wasn't. I'm like, what are you talking about? The camera and sound sucked. Like, I'm not happy with it. Why are you happy with it? Um, it's really strange. People,
0: people, There's no other profession, is there, really, that I can think of, apart from sort of being an artist, I guess, where uh, you you do your work, you do your day job, which is making movies, and then the whole world feels like they're entitled to come and, like state their opinion I know like maybe a They're football player or a politician <laughs> like
1: it's like it's a very weird exclusive club but what's weird is we have websites devoted to giving our reviewing our work like giving it a star rating yeah. like what the hell is that about you kind of just it's a strange thing it is a strange thing you know I've learned to just I've learned to totally let that go you know you got I just your, ignore I ignore it I
0: ignore all the bad stuff I ignore all the good stuff
1: I don't, I don't care anymore. You got to ignore it altogether. Um, sometimes I'll peek through it, though, and I'll look for valid points. Because sometimes I'll read something and I'll be like, you know what? They're right. But it's rarer and rarer these days because most of the time you already know what's wrong with your movie.
0: That's what I always find. I, I know what's wrong with the movie. I don't need all you people to tell me. Yeah. You know, I know what's wrong and I know what's right. And I know they say, obviously, you got a biased opinion because you made the thing. But I disagree.
1: I know what is wrong and right. I think about that a lot. When people are like, I hated your movie. I'm like, well, you don't hate it more than I do. <laughs> yeah, we have to see this a hundred times. <laughs> I don't know. It's like being the parent of a serial killer or something like that. It's this weird <laughs> relationship where I'm like, it's a bad movie, but I still love it. <laughs> if, my, if my
0: listeners were to go and watch just one of your films... Mm. which one should they go and watch and and why that one
1: okay uh my best movie is american hunt because i had what i needed um but my best script is the alpha test uh Mm -hmm. but we did not have what we needed and you can tell uh but that's actually probably like my best story um Ouija Craft is the most accessible I prefer the Alpha Test a lot of people prefer I prefer the Alpha (laughs) Test it's just the thing about the Alpha Test is that we didn't have what we needed you know Uh, but the Alpha Test is my Mm. personal favorite American Hunt is the best overall and everybody's favorite is Ouija Craft because it's a big CGI filled witch movie and it's a lot of fun and that Ouija craft really changed my perspective, too, though, because I thought, yeah, I want to do fantasy and science fiction. And after doing a fantasy mm. movie, I'm like, boring. I need I need more death. I need more blood. I need more intensity, <laughs> you know, Yeah. because yeah. as much as much as I love stripped down and simple and characters and story, it's like I also love blood and guts. And I love movies like House of the Devil you got to earn yep. your blood and guts, unless it's a splatter movie like Death Ranch, which I also love because I'm, I'm developing a splatter movie <laughs> right now. I've always wanted to do an over-the-top splatter movie, but um, yeah. all that to say, yeah, if you like mainstream shit, Ouija Craft. If you want to see my favorite, Alpha Test. But the best in show usually goes to american hunt.
0: That's a sneaky little answer. That's a sneaky answer. That's a that's a that's a trilogy
1: that you right <laughs> told there. people to go and All get right, there. if I had but to say one, it would probably be No, no, the it's alpha fine.
0: Go and buy the go and get the trilogy. Go, go get the trilogy. Yeah. Go be, I mean they're
1: all free on Tubi anyway. <laughs>
0: cool. I asked you as well, like I ask everyone yes. on my podcast to pick a film uh, to discuss that uh, influenced you.
1: Okay. I'm going to go with 1408. And the reason I'm gonna go with 1408 is because there are obvious, like everybody loves Jaws. Everybody loves Alien. Everybody loves, like, it's no secret that these movies are good, right? We're
0: sick of hearing about those movies.
1: Yeah, everybody knows they're genius. But 1408 is a movie I have seen over and over and over. I rewatched pieces of it. Brad was showing his girlfriend and I've seen it a thousand times. So I was watching some of my favorite scenes. And it's Mm. like, this movie does not get the respect it deserves. And it had a huge influence Mm. on me. When I talk about minimal storytelling and I talk about locking characters in places and, you know, Mm. focusing Mm. on that, that's 1408. But it's still insane and it's still intense. Because normally when you think character-driven movie, you think like, oh, shitty French movie ahoy. You know, like, here it comes. (laughs) Some boring shit movie where nothing happens. Or elevated horror, whatever the fuck that means. You know, where it's these (laughs) brainy horror movies where it's scary if you think about it, you know, which pisses me off. I'm like, it's either scary and cool or it's not. It's either bloody Mm. and exciting or it's not. Your story is either Mm. interesting and you know what the fuck is going on or not. And it pisses me off because I'll watch all these (laughs) A24 movies. I'm like, nothing happened in that movie. Nothing happened in that movie. You know, you need to be a fucking genius to pull that shit off, like The Lighthouse or The Witch, you know, because that is genius. And he took his time and there's just details every time you watch it. But the majority of these movies, I'm like, what the fuck are you? Who do you think you are? You know, (laughs) and so when I go back and I watch 1408, I'm like, this is exciting. It's minimal. It's interesting. It's unique. It's experimental. And nobody cares, and it makes me sad because everybody likes that movie, (laughs) but nobody's really gone back and appreciated it. And so, you know, I think every filmmaker... I always say that every filmmaker gets a couple of movies that they can go Mm. out and preach the good news about, you know, because there are a Mm. lot of movies that weren't particularly popular until Quentin Tarantino talked about them or until Steven Spielberg talked about them, you know. Yeah. And so uh, I'm on the Let's Get 1408 the recognition it deserves train. Um
0: well I remember I mean I'm a huge, huge Stephen King fan. That's what got me into horror and I guess then into filmmaking and making horror movies. But I remember um when the trailer for 1408 came out. That was like at the peak when I was so intrigued by Stephen King. But then I had to wait like a year it felt like. It felt like ages until the film finally came out because I couldn't see it in the cinema because I was too young yeah. so I got it on DVD so it was like a year maybe even longer than that until I finally got to see it and it is a really good film
1: yeah
0: uh, but the other films you mentioned like cuz I mean we mentioned in passing alien and jaws yeah y- you're right because they also especially alien is the same thing it's just a spaceship yeah it's so simple it's just a it's a few rooms in the spaceship and the second half of jaws is sh- just a boat Exactly, and then 1408 is just, just one room. room. But uh, it, it definitely pays well for people like us with not a huge amount of money to make movies uh, to be a fan of that contained set storyline, yeah. which I think, personally, it, it's the best way. I mean, if you, if you think of all the great horror films, or not all of them, but a lot of them, mm-hmm. like The Shining or something, it, it is confined to the hotel. Well, and it's you know. why
1: of all your movies, winter skin is my favorite, you know, it's because,
0: cause that's probably confined. Well, to and it's so nightmarish.
1: Almost. Like David is stuck with this crazy lady and you're like, Oh shit, man. And it just <laughs> felt like the misery movie we never got. Cause I love the book misery and the movie was good and all. Um, but winter skin to me felt like this just different version, different mm. take on the whole genre of, you know, chamber thrillers and I don't know it's just it's super cool I mean it's the same reason why I liked An English Haunting you know yeah but I mean even Death Ranch it's like The Barn it's all set at the ranch it's all set I at mean, the ranch
0: for, for, for me as a writer yeah I kind of I don't like stories I don't I don't gravitate to stories that are messy and go all over the place all of my films are set in one place yeah uh, pretty much and if they ever went other places it was kind of by accident well you know
1: but it's... they're all basically one place you know what's funny is so you're talking about I don't like stories that go all over the place my movies someone there was a critic who said um, I've seen all of Aaron's movies and all of his <laughs> movies chase their own tail." and I was like mm. yeah they do and I like that so shut <laughs> up and he had put it into words I was like yeah they do I like that That, and that's another thing yeah, that 1408
0: movies, does your movies do go all over the place they
1: do because it's always like you've never done contained well, the, 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 I, you're right. I have not, <laughs> I haven't. It's because I've, I've always been forced <laughs> to not. It's always like, okay, we need this many locations, this many blah monsters, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The story is always usually very much focused on one person who gets tossed around. Um, mm. And I think what I would encourage people is it's the same thing with every other indie filmmaker, myself included. It's like, just, just please, please, for our sake we're learning and I know this is too much to ask of an audience but just like bear with us there's a lot of good stuff (laughs) in these movies there's a lot to love here but
0: well the thing is people over all of the history of cinema have been forgiving of movies but now people expect technology technology's gone so far people expect everything to be pristine oh I know if you released Evil Dead now if if you even released Jaws now or Alien now I do think that people would go, "Oh, that shark looks a load of shit." Yeah. Oh, that that alien was just a man in a suit, or that alien only came in the last ten minutes. You never really got to see him. You know, th- this is a- an Evil Dead. People wouldn't even watch oh, it. Oh, I They'd know. Say it was shot on shot on your mobile phone or whatever. Yeah. But um, people need to remember that. That uh, well, in fact, they don't need to remember it. I just. We need to, we as the filmmakers need to remember to ignore <laughs> what these idiots
1: yeah say and
0: think. We need to, because... yeah, because
1: obviously the best you can do is the best you can do. And you're going to get better every time and you're going to continue to push yourself to learn. And you can't ignore the bad things about your movies and just say, get over it. You want to get better. But at the same time, mm. it's like the only way an audience is going to enjoy this stuff is if they, you know. There's so much out there to love because I've I've learned that myself because I've been watching more and more smaller and smaller stuff to learn, but I've ended up enjoying Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And it's like the more Mm -hmm. you know about movies, the more it's like you learn to enjoy the good stuff in a movie and forgive the bad stuff in a movie. There's a lot of stuff out there that's really good, just has a couple of fatal flaws. But if you can look past it...
0: I think both you and me have at least one film that we've made that is a good, solid movie... Yeah. ...that will stand the test of some time. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) In five, ten years, maybe people still could stick it on and, and, and enjoy it. But
1: something I love about horror is horror, it only gets better with age. Yeah. You know well and you know I was thinking about that as why that is because I rewatched Frankenstein James Wells Frankenstein from 1931 thinking Mm -hmm. this movie is 90 years old and it's just gotten scarier Mm. with age and it's not scary Mm. in the way that like The Conjuring is scary it doesn't make you jump but like it's like black and white and grainy and it's got this vibe about it and you're like ugh like that's it's old (laughs) and there's something about being so disconnected from time and this relic from like another era that I think uh, makes it feel scary. So you're right, horror movies, they're like wine.
0: Exactly, that, that is what I think. And I think as long as there's a filmmaker, you put enough care and attention to detail into the story and the cinematography, whether people know it's there or not, it, it's there, you know, you you know if it's there. Yeah. If you put it there, it's there. It's always going to be there. Yeah. And I think you and me, we, uh, we make films with care.
1: Yeah, well, and I think hopefully that's what's going to make us last and make many more movies for many years to come rich and successful rich and (laughs) successful (laughs) doubt it
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and on and on that note uh that is the end of the podcast right on thanks for coming on Aaron
1: thanks for having me man it was a lot of fun
0: as always thanks so much for listening to the podcast As I said in the interview, I really recommend picking up some of Aaron's movies. If you're interested in giving them a watch, you can find them all on Amazon. And as for Death Ranch, it's coming to the USA and the UK in spring summertime, 2021. And I really can't wait for people to see what we got up to in Tennessee. I'm so proud of the work everyone put into the movie and the response we've had so far from festivals and our GrimFest world premiere has been really exciting. So look out for Death Ranch when it's released. I'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks, I'll see you then.